Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. In each episode, I talk to women of all sorts about life and art in the South. And sometimes I catch you up on the life of me, which today I feel like I have to do just by way of explaining possible extraneous background noise. And you can take that either concretely or metaphorically. Both are appropriate today. January has been kind of crazy around here so far. I went to Brooklyn for an opening, canceled half of my first week of classes, and then brought back a souvenir head cold, which you may can still hear in my voice. And my son now has the cold, so he's home sick from school today. And my house is full on currently under construction. I'm building a new studio, which is awesome, but not super conducive to podcasting right this second or any time in the next few months, really. So it's just been one of those situations where I'm waiting for a Goldilocks moment to have some quiet time to suddenly be able to record without distractions, but it's not happening. So if you hear something that sounds like a crew of men tearing up concrete or a 12-year-old coughing and watching Marvel movies or maybe a husband who I thought was at work busting in to drop off the dog who he just took to the vet in the background, that is exactly what is happening here. Maybe we'll get lucky if I talk fast enough and you guys won't have to hear all that stuff. So let's get straight into the episode with Atlanta artist Sonia Young-James. The episode, unlike this intro, was recorded in a pristine audio environment, a space dedicated especially to podcasting, set up by the wonderful and generous duo Joe Camusa and Matthew White. Thanks so much to both of them for letting me and Sonia Young-James crash their space for a few hours. Joe and Matthew run Brain Fuzz podcast out of Atlanta, covering art, music, and culture. They're both artists themselves, and you may remember me mentioning them here on Peachy Keen before because I was a guest on their podcast, Brain Fuzz, way back on their 29th episode in November of 2017. They're up to 54 episodes now, which is amazing. Congrats, guys. And their last seven episodes were all taped at the now-defunct Temporary Arts Center in Atlanta, where they built out a podcasting space, and I believe they were referring to it as a podcasting residency that they were, they were doing there. The Temporary Arts Center was a 66,000 square foot space, a former Conklin metal building in downtown Atlanta, that artist and curator Scott Ingram turned into, to use Brain Fuzz's synopsis, a kind of pop-up on speed. You should definitely listen to Brain Fuzz for more of the nitty-gritty on Scott's curation, the space, and hear from some of the other artists in the show, which was aptly named Project. There were 31 artists in all, mostly from Atlanta, that exhibited in the show, and that was up November through the end of December 2019. For today's episode, I spoke with Atlanta artist Sonia Young-James, whose massive artwork was prominently featured in the first large open space, when you walked into the Temporary Art Center's project exhibit. Sonia Young-James is a multidisciplinary artist working with thread and cloth. She's represented by White Space Gallery in Atlanta, is this year's winner of the Artadia Award for Atlanta, and has exhibited her work extensively with recent solo exhibitions at White Space and the Zuckerman Museum of Art. 
I've been following her work for a while now and was so thrilled to be able to sit down and chat with her for a few hours. It was a great talk. Honestly, I think we talked longer off mic after the recording, which you guys know I should know better than to turn my mic off by now, but we were walking around the exhibit, so that really wasn't an option. So much fun. Anyway, I know y'all are going to enjoy it as well, so here it is, me and Sonia Young-James in the Brain Fuzz recording booth at the Temporary Arts Center in Atlanta. Check it out. I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty nervous, right? So I'll have oh, to be sure not Don't be to. nervous. I actually was a little bit nervous, too. Oh, why? I think I'm not usually nervous at these things, but I think because I was really excited. To talk. Oh, I mean, you're like sweet. For me, it's like excitement and anxiety are like almost the same t- thing sometimes. Sure, sure. Like, so I have an anxiety disorder and I like, I everything makes me anxious. Yeah. But like when I get excited, I get anxious. And so sure, I think sure. I was just really excited oh, to talk to you. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> well, now, well, once you get to know me, you'll realize, oh gosh, why in the world was I anxious about talking to her? <laughs> well, I, I, well, let's just say I was ex- I'm excited. I think oh, it's well, I'm it excited is. to talk to you too. Um, so, and we can start with like, so the mic is already on and going and I'm gonna continue to wear these so that I can oh, gotcha. see if something are we recording yeah it's already recording oh but wow I'm, okay um, that's what I was talking to Joe about when he first came in here I was like do how do you feel about gorilla recording like <laughs> you have to record at the beginning right because then you get the chit chat and otherwise sure, it's just like sure. a real and you get warmed up right you get warmed up and also it's uh, more gradual to me, like, it just sounds weird to come in and, like, start with a and question. so, yeah. Yeah, that's not the way I do the podcast. It's very chatty. Right, right. Because, like, yeah, what ended up happening, it was kind of somewhat recently, I went on um, NPR here at WAB to talk to Lois Reitzis, mm-hmm. and, of course, it was live, mm-hmm. and it was like, and three, two, one, go. <laughs> and needless to say, there was a lot of dead air. Because oh. <laughs> she would ask me a question. Because I asked her assistant, I'm like, you hey, just so I'm kind of prepared. You know, it's like that anxiety thing. What do you think, you know, Lois wants to talk to, to me about? And what kind of questions is she going to ask? And she was like, Bleh, you know, just kind of like pretty general stuff. I'm like, all right. And uh, I don't know, you know, it was just had been a really long couple of days. I was pretty exhausted and a little nervous, you know, because mm-hmm. it's live. Right. You know, and as Lois writes us, and she's yeah. very, very sweet, of course. And, uh, yeah, well, I heard it afterwards, and I could tell that live they did a lot of editing. very tricky. <laughs> but, I mean, this, I have the opportunity to edit, but I try not to. Oh, I see. I feel okay. like the less editing I do, the better it is. Yeah. I mean, if something really weird happens, then I'll edit it out. But. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. What I really appreciate is, uh, do you listen to On Being? Yes, yes. So, yeah, I love that about Krista Tippett. So you have the unedited, which mm-hmm. can sometimes be almost two hours long, and then the very edited yeah. version, too, where it's kind of trimmed down. There is no dead air. There's no uh-uh, you know, that kind of thing. Well, so. I, I need an intern, which I want to talk to you about that um, <laughs> sure, later sure. In, in this, uh, working with assistants and whatnot. But first I wanted to start with um, – God, what to start with? I, I think the last time we met, so and the only time we've ever met. That's true. Right? right. Was at uh, Mocha, Georgia. Yes. And Scott Sylvie introduced us after. He did. Yes. He after did. Um, Kirsten Mitchell's performance. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember what the show was. Okay, yes, that's right. So that was a while ago, wasn't it? I feel like it was warm weather. It was summer of 2018. I looked it up before this interview because I was trying to figure right. out how long Yo, it was. That's right. And I went, right, I came off of scaffolding because I was installing the Zuckerman show then. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. yes. And well, I, I, a year and a half ago. Yeah, and I just remember really hitting it off with you in the parking lot and thinking, yeah. this is a cool person that I want to see more <laughs> and hang out with more. And part of it was also the vibe of you and Kirsten Mitchell and, and me all having this, we're generationally oh, the yes. same. Yes. Right? So we're both 1971. Yes. Oh, you're born in 1971. Yes. I am. Excellent. A, I am a 1971er. Oh, I and love I th- it. And I think she's 72. And so I was feeling right. that kind of her her installation had a lot of like I remember Spirit in the Sky. Right. Right. The <laughs> the music was so of the 70s and right. like that was nostalgic for people that are like our age. Absolutely. And to see to for me like as a woman of this age, I don't feel like there are a lot of us in the art world. There isn't. And. Uh, it's exciting to actually meet other women that are my age and right. still, you know, fighting the good fight. That's right. <laughs> that's that's what it is, is still making art because right. I feel like I mostly hang out with and interview younger Absolutely. by a substantial amount right. women. Right. So like in, you know, a decade younger than me is where I feel like my husband's a bit younger than me. So like mm-hmm. a lot of our friends will fall into that category, right. but I just don't know a lot of women our age. I'm going to be honest. I don't either. Who I are really still making don't. art. Exactly. Um, and they say that's, isn't that statistically the way it kind of goes too? They say that after after art school, it will be at best 1% of the people you went to school with oh, yeah. will be conti- will continue to be artists and will continue to do work. And I wonder what percentage of that is women, like if it's a much lower percentage with women. I would almost expect it might be, right? Yeah. Because of the sort of pressures that we have in our lives, especially if we get married, we choose to have children and right. those kind of roles that we tend to have. And then think about like longevity and time. I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of willpower <laughs> and stamina to keep doing it, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, so and then you think, oh, wow, you know, because, you know, when you're young and you're 25 years old and your professor tells you, well, now it's a hard life. And you're like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> and then with each year, <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, you bet. <laughs> it's, it gets discouraging. I don't know. I'm super persistent. I am too, and I'm determined, and I'm a little stubborn. Yeah. You know, I always finish <laughs> things that I start. I have to, you know, and uh, I, I just, yeah, I just can't quit. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I feel like we immediately had something in common because yes, definitely. we're of that age. We've made it this far. <laughs> we're like last last men spit standing. <laughs> so to speak um which is exciting and so let's talk about since we are the same age let's go way back a little bit okay like you know the 80s like what was a young you that was really you know it was kind of a really hard time I would say okay so my parents met in the late 60s I was born in Knoxville Tennessee in 71 and then they moved to Decatur six months like six months later and then to Stone Mountain. So I would say a lot of my real young formative years was in the 70s in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was in Memphis. I was born in Memphis. Okay. And okay. also moved to Georgia. So okay. we have that in common oh, great. as well. But well, I grew up in Albany, Georgia, which is much different than... It, than uh, oh, wow. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's probably some things... Uh, there's probably some similarities, similarities. especially I mean, the you're time You're very period. close to Atlanta. That's true. In Stone Mountain. 
And I've been to Albany before. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, you were in a show at the Albany Museum recently, yeah. right? No, it was Not actually recently. many years ago, probably okay. 15 years ago. Okay. Yeah, but I'm sure Albany has changed a lot in those 15 years. <laughs> okay, well, maybe not. <laughs> I went back there, so I hadn't been there in like 20 years. Okay. And I went back there recently. I mean, it's changed and it hasn't, yeah. I feel like. Um, a lot of places are that way, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't feel great about being there, but I think that's as much on me as it is on Albany. Like, sure. I, similar to you starting to say you had a rough time in the eighties, like in some ways, like I feel like, you know what, it's just a hard time to be, to be a teenager. And yeah, it's a tough age, right? You're coming into your own, you're trying to figure out who you are. And sometimes the circumstances can be really troubling, really challenging. Sometimes you're not given a lot to work with. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of pushing against that which I would say was a lot of that in the 70s for me I mean I was extremely isolated Mm. um it was certainly not multicultural right Atlanta or even particularly Stone Mountain so did you have a lot of family around no okay like not at all so that's what you yeah the only person just your parents exactly the only person that looked like me was my mother and my brother Mm. you know um, and, you know, it's kind of a weird time, too, and just like uh, in history, in the Deep South, right? Right. Think of, like, all the things that happened in the late 60s, which was only a couple of years before you and I were even born. Right. You know? My dad was in Vietnam. I saw Mine was, was, too. Yeah. Yes. That's why, of course, he's from La Follette, Tennessee. And that's how he met my mom. Yeah. yeah. He was stationed in Korea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that's, there was a, I mean, and that was the time of, now if you go to Stone Mountain, it's interesting because I actually had, what is the right word? I was trepidatious mm-hmm. about taking my children, I have two boys, to right. Stone oh, Mountain. Sure. Um, because of my experience as a young person there. Right. Oh. Um, just like sure. the laser show. Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> the laser show. I mean, it just felt very gung-ho for the Confederacy, kind oh, of. Oh, uh, and it was. And it was. And and so, you know, my kids uh, were born in New York, actually, but they wanted to see snow. Okay. And so now they have the snow mountain thing. Oh, they do? At Snow Mountain, where they do <laughs> fake snow in the winter. And they really wanted to see snow. And I was like, well, we're not, we're not going skiing this winter. We're not making any trips anywhere. All right, I'll take you to Snow Mountain. <laughs> And we went, and it's actually, speaking of things changing, I was pleasantly surprised at how they have really directly addressed the kind of racist um, history of the area, and particularly of the park. Like, there was was signs, and, you know, it was extremely diverse when we were there. Well, that's good to hear. I haven't been in many, many, many years. But yeah, then all the Stone Mountain I grew up in, of course, there were the... KKK rallies there. Mm. There was the KKK parades mm-hmm. down Main Street. I lived next Did to the s- headquarters. Okay. And that was terrifying. The you headquarters know. of the KKK. Absolutely. Did it have a sign out front that said well, headquarters you know, of the KKK? As a matter of fact, it did, but oh I can't, I'm trying to remember because I was super young. So I was around when I was really kind of, um, when I really started to notice it and peek and look, it was, uh, I was probably around seven years old seven eight and uh it was a lot of it was like these metal buildings if i remember correctly and maybe a house and it was a compound and a lot of trailers and so they had a big sign on the trailer and it said whoever the grand wizard was Mm. and i think the family that owned that property their last name was venable Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And they had a menagerie of animals. Venerable? Uh, venable. Venable, okay. Yeah, venable. venerable. Oh I think gosh. that's right. Okay. I think that's right. Um, and they had a menagerie of animals, which was really peculiar. They had peacocks, chickens, ducks, horses, all kinds of stuff. So were over you there. sneaking around? I was the... absolutely doing that. Did they see that. you in there? I was scared to death that they would. Okay. Because they also had a lot of beware of dog signs. And mm-hmm. so sometimes my brother and I would sneak over there and peek because we knew, kind of like understood what was going on there, but then we kind of didn't. Did and your parents warn you? About the KKK headquarters? I don't, like, think, I don't think they ever really... You know, like, I grew up around alligators. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you get any kind of, like, watch out for the gators? Exactly. Or? <laughs> well, they want to shoot their guns off, too, when they would feel present. Like, they, they would. Have, yeah, they would. They would. Right. And that would scare us. We would run. <laughs> um, yeah, I just couldn't keep away. You know, it's like, ooh, you know how it is. Like a moth uh-huh. to a flame. You know, you're just kind of fascinated. And I would sneak over there and, you know, feed the horses and stuff and mm-hmm. just scared to death that I would get caught, but loved the thrill of it, too, right. you know. That's the 70s, right? Like, in a nutshell, like, da- wild and dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of, but free at the same time. Yeah, exactly. We just yeah. ran kind of wild in, yeah. the, in the neighborhood and would run past there because that was on the way to the ballpark and then to the public swimming pool, you know, and... Uh, I feel like you have to be brave to even be a person of our age, like, because you had to, like, live through that childhood of right making your own way out there absolutely and I think probably also with the combination of it was sort of like a violent climate yes and culture around me and it was violent at the house too so there was really kind of no safe places mm. really you know and are your parents still around and together no 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 um they're not together okay yeah yeah so the High school that you went to, was it a public high school? It was. And it, did you go to high school in Stone Mountain? I did. Okay, so were you like, what What was kind of music did you listen to? I'm just curious. Um, let's see. <laughs> My first concert I went to when I was 14 years old was Susie and the Banshees. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that see, can give you an idea. And that of gives course... me a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I had I, I uh, knew some uh, boys that were brothers that were a few years older than me, and so we would listen to anything and everything. So that's whenever I found about. Well, no, actually, I met Carlton and Dave when I was twelve, and they were probably three years older than me. So okay. that's when I started listening to REM, mm-hmm. and they liked the Violent Femmes, oh, yes. and then of course Sex Pistols. So if I was twelve, that would have been like eighty-three. Okay, I'm fi- I, I feel you. I was into all of those things. All of those things. I went to. I see that you went to Georgia State. I did. did you start in like 89 90 I did. Okay. 89 <laughs> so the same year I started at Georgia Tech in 1989 oh wow okay yeah. and I did two years there before I was like I'm not an architect I'm moving on but while I was here like I imagined when I was getting to interview you I was like oh she was there in college in Atlanta at the same time I was funny I was hanging out in Oakland Cemetery which is just right absolutely. here um, absolutely wearing my heavy black eyeliner and my dyed mahogany hair um, yeah, as you do. Yeah. Yes, as you do. <laughs> well, you know, I was born on Halloween. Oh! So, you know. So I spent some time exciting. in Oakland Cemetery as a kid, you bet. <laughs> wow, so you've embraced that, like, Halloween birthday? Yeah. To go a little bit spooky? Like, like you feel like that's a good thing? Like, yeah, like, I love yeah. it. Yeah. I think it's kind of great. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right. So that's not too, that, that's kind of what I envisioned. I felt like maybe we were both goth girls when we were younger. Sure. I could see that about you. Absolutely. You know, in fact, whenever I was a teenager, probably around the age of 13, the teachers were really concerned about me. Really? So they pulled my, <laughs> At my 13. mom. Yeah, they okay. pulled my mom in and they're like, we want to know what's going on with your daughter. She's either wearing from head to toe all black or head to toe all white. What's the story? Hmm. What was this? So this is interesting. I've only recently got, okay, I'm not wearing it today, but I've started thinking I want to go all white. I love white. And you know who I love is Yoko Ono. Like my style icon is Yoko Ono. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, she'll do like all white or all black. Yeah, I'm Um, into that. Yeah, I'm into that too. I love it too. You would look great in a white suit. I do. I need. I need a white suit. That's what I've been thinking lately. I have a really nice white coat, and I've been wearing nice. a white shirt with the white coat. And I'm starting to transition. I feel like black at my age is just not as flattering anymore. Oh, you think? I don't know. I feel like it brings out all the wrinkles <laughs> and the like. I need something brighter. That's so funny. Maybe. I don't know. I need a good black suit. I've been thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to wear ties. Too. Do you teach? I don't. Okay. I'm asked that a lot, but no, I don't. Because I have to get into some blazer activity with uh, my... <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like being a short woman, I felt like I didn't get enough respect as a teacher, so I had to start blazering up. I hear you. Like, okay. to kind of, like, puff up a little bit. I guess, like, like, how women must have felt in the 80s, right? Yeah. With all those shoulder the pads. The shoulder pads <laughs> protecting you from the world. Yeah. That's so. I'm part man. Look out. <laughs> I got the shoulder pads here. I actually do love to wear men's clothes, and I like to dress androgynously for sure. I don't do it a lot, but I do love it, like wearing ties and yeah. suits. My favorite shoes are men's shoes, but they never come in my size. Oh. But. Yeah. So you, at Georgia State, what was your major? Printmaking. How did you end up in that? Well, you know, ever since I was really, really young, a child, I knew I was going to be a painter. Hmm. And so when I went to, I actually, when I, you know, I had a job since I was 12 years old, and I saved up $1,000 to go to, like, a summer program at the Atlanta College of Art. Just never knew I could transfer that to, to uh, whenever I went to college there, uh, starting in 89. But I just couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Back then, there wasn't, like, the Hope Scholarship. No. There wasn't all those there things back no then. There was no Hope Scholarship until we graduated. Yeah. It was, like, right after we graduated. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so anyways, I always knew I was going to just you know, probably go to ACA. I wanted to maybe try to go somewhere else, but I did get accepted, made the plans, couldn't, affo- couldn't afford it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't afford it, so I went to Georgia State, knowing that I was still going to be a painter, but then I just fell in love with printmaking. So you went into the program painting gung-ho all the way. Yeah, I mean, ever since, you know, t- uh, very young. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a child, really, just knowing I'm going to be did a painter. Did you paint when you were little, or did you draw? Oh, absolutely. Do you, you remember having both. paintbrushes out and, like... Oh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, I was a real nerd, too, in high school. I was, like, president of the art club, and, yeah. <laughs> and how did your fer- parents feel about you painting? Like, were they... I was not encouraged to do art. Okay, my mother is encouraging, my father not at all. Okay. I mean, it's like, you know, and even to this day, I think they're still a little confused, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) My my parents are definitely confused. I feel like in the past couple of years, they've been like, oh, you're having some success that we can recognize as success. Right. When you start having shows and getting press and things like that, that's something that they can relate to. Or my, my dad actually seems more like, oh, that's now it's looking more like a real job. Right, right, right. You know? There's some kind of like external validation <laughs> yes. that they can kind of wrap their head around that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. You bet. And I think, you know, I, 
think my mother is just a mother and she just worries. I mean, I had a conversation with her as recently as a week ago. She was like, so, uh, <sighs> you think about getting jobs, Sonia? <laughs> what about teaching? And I was like, well, yeah, I think about that, but I need to go get my MFA. And she, you know, she just talks to me about all those. She just still worries about me. She's mm-hmm. like, oh, you're getting old. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, you really need to think about this kind of stuff. You know. So you, you don't know, have an MFA. And I don't. And speaking of that, you know, I've always wanted one. I had to sell a river of beer to put myself through undergrad. It took 10 years to get that degree. Wait, what were you doing? What were you selling beer? Where were you I, I was working in bars and restaurants. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and it took 10 years. I and immediately went to brewery and like, <laughs> you're working in a brewery. No, okay. No, yeah. Uh, I think, I don't know what it is now, but back then it was a five-year full-time degree. So as you can imagine, you know, having to go part-time. Right. So I was kind of done with going to school for a while, but I've always wanted to get my MFA. So honestly, I still kind of think about the idea of maybe a low residency mm-hmm. at SAIC maybe or okay. something. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of those around now. There are now, yeah, because I remember there used to only be, what, Bard? Well, there's one in Tennessee now. Okay. Uh, uh, I know, oh gosh, um, Jody Hayes is, teaches there. It starts with a W, maybe Watkins okay. in Tennessee. And then um, I know Katya Tepper, who's an artist in Athens, is doing, or maybe has finished now, a low residency MFA. She's t- doing somewhere in the Northeast. Oh. So there's like, there's quite a few of them okay. around. Yeah, because I was in Chicago this time last year, kind of checking it out and mm-hmm. talking to them there. I mean, I'm going to be really honest. I c- I'll do it if I can get, you know, funding or fellowship. So you're not, you're committed to Atlanta. Not necessarily. Okay. I mean, like, for the long run? Like, do you see yourself staying here? Or are you... I mean, you're, you've been here for... Ever. Ever. And I never meant to stay. <laughs> that's the thing that's so ironic about it. You know? All right. Yeah. Yeah. I've almost left, like, a, you know, 40 times. I don't know have why I never did. you ever lived outside of Atlanta? No. No. Okay. How crazy yeah, is that? Yeah, you should go to Chicago. Yeah. Well, out. low residency, oh, I mean, I could still be, yeah. be here. It could be maybe more affordable. But why not just move to Chicago? Well, see, that's how I kind of feel about it. I mean, I've waited this long. Right. Why not just go, do it? You know, yeah. I have nothing to lose. No. You know? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so funny. I mean, I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, I had friends that went to ACA, and so some of them moved out to L.A. and went to CalArts. Mm-hmm. So I went to L.A. all the time. And then over time, I went out there all the time, too, for work. Um, doing freelance work that I did, and I was—I almost moved there, you know, ten times. Mm-hmm. Um, New York, same thing. I had friends that were musicians that lived in Alphabet City, you know, and I would go starting when I was 18 years old. I'm like, ah, this is where I belong, and I never went. I always visited a lot. I worked a lot in New York, worked a lot in L.A., but never moved. I had—I moved to Brooklyn. So this is my fourth time living in Athens. I uh, Fourth time? Yeah. Wow. Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Athens, Brooklyn, Athens. <laughs> um, but I made that leap to move there. I did not know a single person in New York City. Good. And nice. That's I, nice. I got a divorce. Okay. And just felt like making a big leap. Good for you. You know? And I did it. But Good for you. That now, takes a lot of chutzpah. You know, I didn't think about it taking that at the time, but wow. now I look back at my former self and be like, that was pretty brave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I just seemed like almost the only option. Mm-hmm. Like, I just felt like I couldn't stay here. Oh, I can understand that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it was worth it, I'm sure. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm back here now, but whatever, you know. I feel like it was a very, I mean, clearly a formative experience. Like, really, I was 30 when I moved there. Right. But I was still was just so immature. I mean, I'm an immature person. I feel like, I don't feel <laughs> like I'm 48 in my head. Oh, me either. In my head, I'm still 28 years right? old. And then I see myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, clearly I am not. <laughs> That's how I feel too. I feel really young in my head. In a good way and in a bad way. Like sometimes I feel like I don't give myself enough credit sometimes. Yeah, you know my I, experience. Sure, and I have friends that are in their sixties that are twenty years older than me, and they're like, "Hey, wait till you're my age. It's, it's, it's the same." Yeah, you don't feel. The only thing is, when I was in my twenties, I really was stupid. Like <laughs> you say that, and I no, I was, and I do, <laughs> I do feel like I've learned something <laughs> since then. So I feel like I, you know, in that way, like I, ha- I do give myself a little bit of credit, but like you know. In other ways, I feel very just kind of everything is still new in some ways, you know. I mean, that's a wonderful place to be. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I never want to lose that feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, that feeling where you're sort of things don't excite you anymore. I don't want to say jaded or cynical, but you just sort of you get used to certain things. And you're like, yeah. That's when you were talking about the person, I don't remember who it was now that we came in, that you, you described her as effervescent. Very much so. And she's had what I believed to be a very full and wonderful life yet she's super open and right. I love that because mm-hmm. I hope to always be that way too you know yeah me too yeah so you majored in printmaking and I noticed um I've talked to quite a few artists on this show about because it's women in art in the south right. I've started doing art that can be labeled as fiber art <sighs> and yeah yeah and so I've gotten into that uh, that you know, some younger women I talked to were like, "What? what's the big deal? Like, whatever. Okay. There's no labels anymore. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> those of us, I'm still around and I still have, like, issues sure, with sure. labels. Oh, I do too, as a matter of fact. I have a whole lot of issues with that. I try not to uh, get too preoccupied by it, but it does aggravate me. You know, it's funny that you brought this up because I've been thinking about it and doing a little outline where I wanted, like, maybe write an essay sort of... Um, mm-hmm confronting that word well you so I but I specifically noticed it because so you say you always wanted to be a painter when you were little I for a long time only would call myself a painter right and when I saw your work and a lot of it is uh, or wall hangings right I was like painting but you Mm -hmm. always refer to them or your website it's sculpture yeah that's true right I did um well it's in storage right now I never finished it there's two in there that I felt are definitely paintings. Okay. One I showed in Savannah. And it felt so good because it was literally, I literally made it out of a vintage stretcher that my friend Chester from ACA made me mm. when I was probably like 19 years old. Nice. And I still hung on to this thing. And I cut out the canvas and then I made a painting in the way that I would make a painting now okay. with different kinds of uh, threads yeah. and things like that. It's just a different way to create a line. I think it's all about what your definition of painting is or what your definition of sculpture is and whether you're working on your own definition or somebody else's definition. Well, that's true, too. And then some people get, like, really aggravated by that. Well, why do you call that a painting? You know, that's not a painting. Mm -hmm. That is using textiles. Here's the thing. You would not call Sanford Biggers a textile or fiber artist. Right. Even though he does a huge amount of work with found quilts. No one's 
calling Sanford Biggers a fiber artist or a textile artist. Mm-hmm. Kevin Beasley, they call him multi, you know, disciplinary, multimedia, sculpture. No one calls him a textile artist or a fiber artist, but, you know, a large part of his work is found clothing. Right. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, you know, and a lot of men are using fabric, fiber, and textiles now. And I uh, don't ever see that term really being used for those men. I just don't. And the last artist I talked to talked about even between those two terms, textiles has like a little bit higher up on the rung than Than fiber. fiber. Right. Right. Weird. Yeah, those hierarchies of material. Materiality is really important to me. Now, I can understand subscribing to or wanting to be a part of something that you can relate to or other people that use the same kind of media that you use. Um, I can understand that. I also feel like that's extremely limiting. Yeah. You know, you're really kind of putting yourself in a ghetto. Yes. Now, why are you doing that? Like, it would be like, why would I call myself a... I mean, let's just put it out there. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> uh, middle-aged, mid-career, Korean-American, feminist, fiber artist. I mean, right. <laughs> why would I do that? Just artist. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm going to take that back, too. I don't even consider myself mid-career. But I'm just, like, trying to tack what on. What do you consider yourself? Just an artist. Yeah. I mean, really, I do. Okay. I mean, I don't deny the fact that I am obviously female and Asian, for sure. I mean, that's a part of my life, my identity. And that comes out in the work, you know. And it, it, that's not a problem. But again, that's even more of a ghetto right. to sort of do that. I think it limits your opportunities, too, and your outlook. Why do you right. want to do that, you know? That's why I always try to claim the painter label, because it's at the top. <laughs> of the hierarchy of <laughs> materials, yes. But, um, yeah, I, th- I do think things are changing, though. Because I, I remember, like, say, about almost 20 years ago, really, but 15 years ago, there was a lot, a lot of discourse about that. You know, right? And about craft versus the, you know, finer arts, and I mean symposiums where like really important curators and writers and artists were getting together and really kind of hashing this stuff out and mm-hmm. writing, you know, writing and books were being done about it. And I see that now, almost two decades later, which is really hard to believe how fast time goes. Right. Those conversations are not hap- no. happening anymore. Really. No, they're not. We are here. Right. And when you think about it, which is really scary about time, I mean, that's a generation. Right. 20 years. Yeah, it is. Wow. (laughs) Another thing that I noticed that I was really interested in your work was your, so your work is non-representational, I would say, by looking at it, but it seems like you're very into narrative. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, because I was looking at your work that you did for the Zuckerman, mm-hmm. and you had referenced Little Red Riding Hood and the Greek myth of Persephone. Right, right. So that's probably the, the most narrative and representational work I've done in a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because that was, that had flowers in the work. And so yes. I don't know, I don't know how you work. I'm assuming it's a back and forth process where mm-hmm. you're, you come up with an idea and then you have some materials about that idea and then mm-hmm. the materials inform your idea it's, is that how it goes it's not like a definitely and vice versa right um i don't necessarily have a real prescribed way of working i do and i don't so sometimes like for that that piece there was sort of an idea and a thought to ha- to actualize that 
the idea of uh, these two stories that are parallel, um, the myth of Persephone and Little Red Riding Hood. Um, and then it kind of came about that way and sort of how I imagined it. Um, Does that have to do with actually working for the museum? I mean, did you come up with the idea before the show or did they? They came to me. Okay. They, yeah, they came to me and they said, well, here's the project wall. We apologize. There's not a lot of time to do the work. How do you feel about it? And I was like, I feel great. <laughs> Let me think. And I had kind of like things were always brewing, you know, because I'm always working and thinking about things. And I thought, ooh, now that would be a great opportunity because it's a really big wall to do something I'm thinking about. And so it started with sketches. Then it started with small prototyping. Then what I had in the studio and then how I could um, acquire the materials and then I just made the work that way. And then sometimes, other ways, the materials will speak to me. They're, because a lot of the materials, to me, are embedded with, uh, with the meaning and with energy and almost their own kind of alchemy and magic. And that sort of sometimes will dictate to me what it ends up being. I follow my hands and the materiality. And I take the time that it needs to tell me what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that sounds like kind of like really opposed, but for some reason I really like to work that way. I like to work in a very intuitive way, and then sometimes I like to work in a very uh, deliberate, prescribed way. And, you know, sometimes too the work will come about, the materials will come about just out of necessity. But then I'll stumble on something that can be kind of perfect in a way, to me anyway. Um, when I was doing, I turned my whole entire studio into a loom. That's how big that sculpture is. Oh my gosh. So there was these. Ta I made tapestry, like tapestry, like wall looms out of screws and wood on all of the walls in that studio, and uh, and then pieced it together on site. And was then, that at the Contemporary? At the Contemporary, yeah. yeah. That's a pretty big studio. Yeah. It's like almost 800 square feet, I think. Um, and the whole it was kind of more exciting in the studio in some ways because you really were in an environment. And how which long were you exciting. in that studio? Four years, four years, almost four years. <clears throat> so I read in one of your interviews, I don't remember where it was, that you listed Anne Hamilton and Peter Korn. Oh, yeah. As a, and I read a quote by um, her that she said, sculptors are hoarders. Do you hoard materials like in oh, your you studio? Bet. Is it <laughs> <laughs> so when I just moved out a couple months ago, it was epic. It was. Oh, it was. Yes. It was painful, super painful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still recovering. So where is all your stuff? In my house and in storage. Oh, my God. It was kind of wild because at the time when I was having to move out of that studio, I was in the process of doing all the casting for this sculpture here at the Temporary Art Center. Uh -huh. And then I was moving into a temporary little space down the street from the Contemporary. My friend has a warehouse that she works out of and lives in. So I moved a lot of things there. Okay. So I moved things here, moved things into that little room. I took down the show at White Space. I found a storage space, and so I moved things into the storage space, and then now my whole entire house is just packed. Oh cool. my god, when you have stuff up at shows, and then you feel like you have space, and then oh. the stuff comes back. It's coming back. <laughs> the Zuckerman piece is coming down in like a couple of weeks. Oh gosh. So clearly this is coming down in like a and week And these or are so. huge They're pieces. Huge <laughs> pieces. And you, some, some, some people who work with fiber... Um, dismantle their stuff absolutely. and like do you reuse your materials absolutely you do yeah you yeah. don't have like a that piece belongs together and i'm never gonna like a sacredness to that one piece you don't want to dis. i wish i could afford to do that and yeah, just know right? that it would end up being somewhere but the real practicality of it is not no. necessarily right. and i understand that that's kind of the challenge of working really large yeah you know it's not easily placed 
but I do it anyway. It's just like, it's a compulsion. I can't stop myself. It's great to work on such a scale as that. I have that issue too, and storage is just a constant problem. This piece out here, what are the dimensions of this piece? So we're in the Temporary art Center right now. Yes. I'm going to get to that. I still wanted to cover a few more things before we get here, but what what the heck? Here we are. Sure, sure, sure. How, how big is this piece? What are the dimensions? I don't really even truly know. I think it's probably 18 to 20 feet long, and the diameter is 12 feet. Okay. Is it a circle? Kind of, sort of. So like okay, a so rounded if, rectangle kind of. Thing. Kind of, yeah. I wanted it to be more of like a circle, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. Eight. Let's say eighteen by twelve by nine ish, ten ish, something like that. So, before we get too much talking about this piece, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. So we've talked about some of your past works and a little bit about materials, but not specifically. So you use. Um, Horse hair. You've already talked about horses. <laughs> yes. So I don't know. Where do you, first of all, where do you get your horse hair? Because yeah. you use a lot of it. I do. I do use a lot of it. Um, different sources. Sometimes people give me horse hair. Okay. Um, there's a place, a couple places in the Midwest. They, uh, they process horse hair from a lot of the different horse farms around that area. So I get it from them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's very... It seems kind of like, I mean, I've read somewhere that you, um, maybe in your artist statement, you mention, what is it, history of mourning? Or like maybe some of your works that have to do, you were interested in the history of mourning at some point. Right, definitely. Um, And your works seem to have that kind of gravitas where they, Mm -hmm. is there's some kind of like, there's never just exuberance. There's also like death. Yes, yes. You know. I had a studio visit kind of recently, about a month ago, and 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 this particular curator said, "Yeah, your work is um, you know, she had all these adjectives. She goes, but it's always mm, a little sad." <laughs> <laughs> of course, I was so happy that she said that. You know, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I'm so glad." You know, yes, yes, absolutely. But that's what I'm drawn to in your work because oh, I great. tend to like. I don't want to look at something that is just pure one thing or the other like it right. to me like life is complicated absolutely you need to be able to see the happy and the sad sure sure at the same time especially in a work of this scale and right. like you're interacting with it um i feel that with your work like i you go through a range of emotions oh how wonderful oh yeah. thank you so much yeah. i hope so i don't want to be like one hit <laughs> yeah <laughs> one note rather you know well painting is kind of bad that way it's a it's more like a phot- photograph like a moment in time but like a, something like this that you have, I mean, painting is more, is longer than a photograph. <laughs> you know, it's, you're creating it over time. But this, you're, cre- you're creating the work over time, but then it also takes a longer time to interact with it. You have to walk, you know, it's a sculpture. You have to walk around it. You can get, you know, really into it. Nice. I, thank you. That's wonderful. Um, that's, that was what was so exciting about this opportunity for me is that the space is so incredible. Mm. And, you know, the space is very emotional and very physical, too. So I love the challenge of being given the opportunity to react to the space. What used to be in this building? It used to be a metal fabrication factory, hmm. I believe. Conklin Metal Industries, I believe it was called. So a lot of metal was happening. And when happening. you walk in the front door, it's got a very industry vibe. Like, yeah. there's that counter, like, stop here, people who do not belong in the factory. 
<laughs> and we will talk to you about where you can go. Right, exactly. You know? So the thing that's exciting about this for me was the fact of walking into this large abandoned industrial building, which is extremely huge, right? Yes. 66,000 oh square feet. And you kind of step over the threshold, you know, into this place that, you know, is full of history and it's really huge, and you're sort of witnessing that. And there's a lot of emotions, I think, in being in really large spaces like that. I love doing sort of like installation work or large sculptural work. I think it's really natural that human beings really respond to that because, I mean, we're we're in space like sculpture right. is, you know? Um, you have to confront it on a kind of more human level. I don't know. When I first started doing sculpture, I was just, it was psychically so intense mm-hmm. because you've created this thing that then you have to interact with. Right, exactly. You can't like push it off and pretend like it's not real. Right, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> um, I like the interaction that people have with the sculpture for sure. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned Anne Hamilton as a an influence. I thought that was interesting because I think you're the third person that I've talked to. She's so amazing She's to me. Yes. One of uh, Jenny Fine, who's a photographer. Do you uh, know her? No. She's a photographer in Alabama. Uh-huh. She actually studied under her for wow three or four years. Like worked with her in her studio. Oh, amazing. And I talked to her. On oh, the up podcast. in Ohio. Yeah. Because I guess she's an educator at yeah. Ohio State University. I think she went to Ohio State. And amazing. She had, she had studied with her. I think she was her studio assistant, actually. For Wonderful. like three or four years. What an amazing experience that must have been. Really? You know, that's another artist. You know, it's really kind of interesting about Anne Hamilton. Um, I've heard her say that she does not like to call herself artist. In fact, she does not call herself artist. What? She calls herself a maker. Okay. I was like, wow, Anne Hamilton? <laughs> okay. That feels very Brooklyn to me. <laughs> She's being a, oh yeah, being a maker. <laughs> being a maker. I couldn't believe she said that. Um, anyhow, yeah, uh, and she often has these opportunities to do these huge kind of sculptures made out of fiber and textiles and big industrial. And she does film as well, right? I think so, and she does. Um, I think photography as well. Yeah, because the photographer is the one that I talked to that worked with her. Okay. Okay. So I don't know. Maybe she. Unless I'm. Yeah, it has mm-hmm. to be the same Anne Hamilton, but it seems like she has a very broad practice. Right. And a lot of influence. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. I love to have these conversations about like powerful women. Artists. Absolutely. And she's extremely eloquent in her writing and her mm-hmm. work. I mean, she has a MacArthur. I mean, she is just really brilliant to me. So speaking of. Um, the MacArthur, you recently won the Artadia oh. <laughs> Award. I'm still shocked, honestly. This is great. Congratulations. Well, thank this you. This is like a really big thing, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, um, I'm honored. I'm still shocked. I'm still surprised. When was what, that a month announced? Like? Recently? About a month ago. A month ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that's something, how many artists receive that award every year? Is it? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't really know. So I know that they give uh, two awards out in New York, Atlanta, San Francisco, Chicago, and I think Houston. Okay. So that would be 10. Mm-hmm. ten so yeah, not a lot. So two in each city. Right. I think they had six cities if I... Okay. I what would be the sixth recently? one? I don't remember. Oh, um, I feel terrible. I should know that. I don't know which ones you said. Did I say San, San Francisco? Francisco? Maybe not. 
L.A.? I think it's L.A. Oh, L.A., of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah, two California cities. Maybe that's where it's it started or whatever. I don't know. I was I was excited for you on behalf of that award. Oh, thanks, um, Vivian. That's really cool. I'm excited, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this piece we're here with mm-hmm. that we started to talk about is called Phantom Thread. Phantom Threads? Yeah, is that what's called, Phantom Threads? So what? How, where did that title come from? Again, you know, crossing over the threshold and sort of responding to the space. I couldn't, I had been recently doing some reading about Korean folklore, and I had come across the idea, I'm not pronouncing this correctly, I'm sure, Guisin, mm-hmm. and it's uh, K- uh, Korean female ghosts that haunt and inhabit abandoned buildings oh (laughs) and I was like "Ah." because sometimes that that was what was so great about the opportunity is to step inside the space and let the building sort of tell me what it was that I was supposed to do Mm -hmm. in this very center there um so that was the inspiration for the piece female ghost a a female ghost ghost. and you're not ready to leave the earth quite yet she (laughs) still has tasks that she needs to complete (laughs) <laughs> oh yes and they sometimes they can be vengeful you know you know like if someone's wronged them they'll try to haunt them and stuff but they do have a supposedly a, a propensity for uh, abandoned large buildings and schools too I, I read but um so you did research for that you do know a lot about korean folklore no 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 not at all but i do i love to read and so i like i'm always mm-hmm. reading and gathering and collecting and thinking about things and so since i had kind of recently been thinking about that and had read about that, and I walked into here, it kind of just sort of like fell into, play, into place really easily in, in some ways. So weirdly, when I walked around this piece, and I just briefly looked at it, and I want to go at, back and look at it some more, but I read that your um, materials list was bed sheets, mm-hmm. wool felt, um, painted rope, cast plaster, mixed media. When I was just walking around it, I believe I saw one gourd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very good, you did. Yes. <laughs> Not in your materials list. <laughs> yeah, that would be a long materials list. Did I put mixed media? I think I probably did. You did put mixed and media, mixed so media. that way you just cover all your bases, whatever <laughs> yes. you threw in there from your yeah, studio. Yeah, it's like kitchen sinks, dude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where did that gourd come from in there? Somewhere in South Georgia. I've just had it in the studio. Mm-hmm. And I love I, I love gourds and what they represent mm-hmm. and the forms and the shapes It's and funny because I just talked to Colleen Merrill, who uses gourds in her work, and the, the last person I talked to. Oh. And she, put, she makes boobs out of hers. Yes, like, Colleen. You, you know, know I was with her at Aramont. Oh, and Naomi. Both of them? Yes. Oh, so that's so funny because you guys are right three in a row on my podcast. Funny. And I had no idea that any of you were at Aramont together. That is so Because, yeah, Naomi, it was Naomi, then Colleen, and now you. That's really interesting. That's very interesting. Because I did the Pentaculum too recently. I remember you posted about that. I loved it. And I was confused because it used to be in January and it was in the spring now. The first one in the spring was the one that I went to. And I really bonded with the folks that were there with me for that. Um, So, yeah, so she had mentioned working with gourds and they are very. The fertility aspect to them. So you said this is like a female ghost. Not much fertility left at that point. I suppose you're right. You know, my materials, I feel, are really embedded with a lot of meaning and a lot of energy as well. Um, bed sheets. Again, you know, it's kind of funny how I came to bed sheets. It was really kind of a practical way. Mm-hmm. When I was doing that really large red piece for the Zuckerman, I had found some really cheap cotton muslin that I dyed, tore, 
inwove right. onto this big tapestry loom. And it like made like, you know, maybe 12 inches square. And I mean, I was trying to do something that's 18 feet, you know. I'm like, what am I gonna do? That's a lot of material I need. And that's really expensive. And since I am a hoarder and mm-hmm. I don't really get rid of things, I should probably be better about getting rid of things. I had in the studio and at home old bed sheets, old white cotton bed sheets. And I was like, perfect. And then uh, it was just like the perfect thing. And so then I went to every single Salvation Army, mm-hmm. Goodwill, and Value Village in the metro <laughs> Atlanta area and got every white cotton bed sheet. And that whole entire like courtyard in my studio was just bred from all the dyeing that I did. Oh I gosh. must have died. I don't even know how many sheets and tore them and wove it. But, you know, in thinking about it, it was ended up being sort of like, it was kind of out of necessity, but it ended up being an a wonderful thing because then it makes me sort of think about what it really means the bedsheet and I think the bedsheet is really um, a very charged material now it was really perfect for the idea of the red piece and the little red riding hood but also just kind of in a general sort of way because as you can see there's a lot of bedsheets in that um, actually uh, everyone everyone knew that I was collecting bedsheets, so the word got out. Right. And so people were coming by the studio with bedsheets, and it was, like, wonderful. But then at that point, they kept coming, and they kept coming, and I had all these bedsheets, and I had already finished the piece. You know, people would show up. Like, I got some cotton bedsheets for you. And I'm like, that is so wonderful. I just installed it. But guess what? I bet you this will come, too. This will come in handy. This will become That'll... a sculpture someday, too. Um, bedsheets. What about bedsheets? They're, um, like these... these silent witnesses to the to really important things about being alive right uh birth uh sickness disease sleeping healing dreaming pleasure death you left out sex you said pleasure Pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) my mind went straight to the sex of course it did most people probably how many people have sex on all these sheets (laughs) that are out there Especially if it's a hotel sheet from a Goodwill. Oh, actually, my my mind first went to the kid Halloween costume with the bed sheet for the ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's about ghosts, right? And you put the holes. It's like the easiest Halloween costume. There's all kinds of trails you can take with that. Yeah, I mean that's why I like using fiber and textiles too. You know how it witnesses the body. You know. And where did you get into dyeing? Because some of the, I saw you did, you did beautiful commission work. Some beautiful commission work that, uh, I don't know, I don't usually consider commission work to be like that great a lot of times because it's like not the artist's main path. It's Absolutely. Like, and there's a lot of compromise that comes to commission work oftentimes. It's right. not often that you get just, car, you know, you can just do whatever you want. But the, I looked at a couple of pieces you've done that were just really beautiful. And mm, the one that I you. immediately was thinking of was uh, Indigo Dyed Spoons. I just did that. Yes. Yeah, I saw that, it on your Instagram page. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just installed that recently. Yeah. And so that's, you know, Indigo is a pretty a, a difficult dye process which I came across at Aramont actually okay yeah Um, and I had never done any real fabric dyeing I had used like oh what are those things it's basically like writ dye but not I use this other kind that you like throw in the washer and I've done that but you know never until really I was at Aramont did I see the real like 
witchy kind of <laughs> brewing that's happening. With I love this. it, witchy. It yes. is witchy. It's Absolutely. like big cauldrons and like it's bubbling and it's beautiful colors. Yeah, and... which is what I have. People used to always joke about it, the Halloween woman with her, <laughs> with her bubbling cauldrons outside. When yes. did you first get into dyeing? You know, it's so funny. So I would say probably in the early 2000s, I lived down the street from here mm-hmm. at the A&P Bakery. Okay. And it was a nice, big, beautiful place. So I lived and worked there. The loading dock was a, like, was a patio, and I could just like haul things in and out of there with the U-Haul, just back up the U-Haul, wow. put it through the loading dock, which the loading dock was like 600, 700 square feet. I was working really, really large. Well, you know, I decided to move and buy a little house, a fixer-upper, and uh, then it was like, wow, can't work so big anymore. (laughs) And that's literally around 2003 when I really started using the fiber and the textiles a lot. So at this point, that's been about 17 years. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I find a home. Yeah. So literally anything that I do in fiber or textiles, because I don't have any sort of degree in it. I didn't major in that. People are like, what? Printmaker? You wanted to be a painter? I'm very confused. But, you know, when you think about it, it's not confusing at all. I taught myself everything. So I sat there. I have to always work and use my hands. There's just no way, you know, I'll... I will be unhealthy if I don't. And so I taught myself, I finally just sat down, taught myself to knit, you know, in this little house. Um, And then... YouTube is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. What you, you know, back then, back, back then, I'm trying to think. Well, of course, there was the internet, but what I did was back then, before everybody started knitting and all mm-hmm. the yarn shops and stuff, uh, there was like a little place where this la- lady has owned this little store for like 30 years, maybe even longer, actually, um, called Needle Nook. And so I walked in there and bought some needles, some yarn, and a little CD to put in my computer. <laughs> and I'm left-handed, too, so I... I so there's always, like, whenever I'm teaching myself stuff, like, from a book, oftentimes it's always geared towards a person that's right-handed. Right. But, um, but yeah, I taught myself to knit. And then I was like, ooh, then I taught myself to spin spin yarn. And then I taught myself to weave. Then I taught myself to dye. And then I taught myself how to felt. And then it just kind of goes on and on and on. And, uh, yeah. That's fun, 17 though. years later, yeah. That's uh, good for your brain to always be learning new stuff. It's like we were, what we were talking about at the very beginning. Right, absolutely. Constantly, you know, as, I feel like as an artist, you want to be in a space of pushing yourself all that time. Never, like, somewhere where you're comfortable. Absolutely. And it's an uncomfortable place to always be pushing yourself, but I yeah. think it's absolutely necessary. Because, again, it's like, okay... I'll do the sculpture out here, or even like the red sculpture, which is really large, or even like the solo show. Again, not a real, real, real prescribed way of working where I have a certain way that I work and maybe perhaps it's variations of that. So there's a predictability and I know what I'm doing. I'm just sort of changing it up. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, it seems like for the past, say, two or three years, I approach every single <laughs> uh, project or show or sculpture, it's like a brand new thing. And it's right. actually really uncomfortable and it's really scary because when I do that, it's, I just have to. It's just the way I work. I have to really push myself kind of to that edge, particularly of not really knowing how something is going to turn out. And knowing also, too, there's a tremendous amount of risk because you can really, really fail in a really spectacular and public way, you know. Because, I mean, I tried to do a little bit of math because I have to be somewhat prepared, you know. But so I had, luckily I was really lucky. I had a couple of interns helping me. And so we're tearing these bed sheets in 
the contemporary, but then I had to move, and then into the temp in the temporary little room space that I had, and then I'm like trying to like kind of like lay it out on the ground with a tape measure and like measure it and like do some math and then think about what the size is going to be here and like do I have enough bed sheets? I mean I know I bought every single bed sheet <laughs> in Atlanta there again. Are no more. <laughs> it better work, you know, and just kind of that real kind of fear, you know, that adrenaline. I mean my adrenal glands, you know, in the month of uh, November <laughs> um, but I don't know it's worth it you know and I kind of think too um, as an artist you want to have that feeling of wonder I think as artists that's the thing that we're always trying to hold on to recapture you know that kind of wonderment of childhood mm-hmm. you know and it's funny that you say that the risk is important because you know I'm a teacher and I'm always it's, I feel like the majority a lot of my students come in to them, art is about beauty. Mm-hmm. It's a very common thing mm-hmm. for people to go into art to make beautiful things. Mm-hmm. And I'm always saying, to me, it's about risk. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're not taking risk with your work, it's not art in my personal definition. Right. You know, not I'm not saying this is what they have to believe, but, like, mm-hmm. it's funny that you say that. Um, well, then it's decorative right. work. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But uh, I don't know if you're going to really... Uh, reach a lot. I don't know if you're going to learn a lot. I don't know if you're going to be challenged a lot, if that's really just the end goal. I don't think beauty is a uh, bad word. I know right. over decades it can come up and be like, ooh, you know, that's not a good, that's a bad word. But um, it can be a really great kind of entry point, too, to make something that is perhaps aesthetically beautiful to bring a person in closer to examine what the work might really be about other than something that is a beautiful object. So I wanted to ask you just on a personal level about working with interns. I'm glad you brought that up uh-huh. because you brought it up in the beginning and it's something that I've been toying with because I, I feel like God I really need an intern or like yeah. especially like with the podcast. Sure. Um, but I've never had one. How did you go about starting to work with assistants and that's that is a career stage when you feel like you're ready to like manage other people in your personal practice. Right right yeah and I'm going to be honest with you it's been amazing. Really? Now it has its challenges mm-hmm. and some interns are amazing some not so much you know I mean you know it just depends but um I would say by and large the assistants and the interns that I've had have been really great and how does that process work for you do you just like word of mouth it let me think how it really came about let's see um the first time there was a young I'm trying to remember how it really really started anyways there was a gal that I knew that mentioned Jess Jones, who was the head of textiles at GSU. And then it was kind of like that sort of set things in motion that, oh, this would be really great to kind of reach out to Miss Jones and talk to her about perhaps, like, does she have like an internship kind of thing in place with any of her uh, younger students? And she did. Mm. And that was really amazing. So she was really the one that really helped me get that started. Great. And at the time, um, I had a really, really huge embassy project. And then I had four, maybe five interns. They were really amazing. So they were all GSU students. They were all GSU students at the time. And they helped me do uh, a couple of really large sculptures and then the U.S. embassy project. And, and it was amazing. It really was. Um, you know, having spent my whole entire life as an army of one, right? 
I think about how, oh, okay, well, we worked on this one particular sculpture that was a horsehair sculpture. There was probably five of us for maybe five months. So it's really easy to do the math. If that was me by myself, that's two years. That's right. You know, so... Um, and talking about aging, like, I am starting to really feel my age physically. Yeah. Like, I can't do what I could before with painting. Like, it's yeah. just when I'm doing big works. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to think about the future for yourself as an artist. Absolutely. Like, like even if I'm weaving, that's a very physical thing. Right. Right? And I was laughing because, you know, whenever I was installing the piece here, I'm like, why am I so sore? Yeah. Besides <laughs> the obvious things <laughs> and reasons. And I was like, oh, well, I was up on a scissor lift for, like, an entire week in the cold, mm -hmm. like trying to balance myself while I look <laughs> 20 feet down and like, you know, oh, you and ignore it. I'm not anymore. Okay. I used to be terribly afraid, but Me now too. I've been working so much on scaffolding and scissor lifts. Did you have not to take so a, much. like, I'm, I'm about to do a mural. I did one mural like about a year ago and I'm about to do another one that's much taller and it's going to require to be, be on a scissor lift and I'm like scared about it. Don't be. Did you do a like training session <laughs> or you just got up on there? Was there like a, nothing? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Scaffolding does make me nervous. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not super, super used to that. Um, but scissor lifts, I feel completely safe. Really? I yeah, they really seem do. like they'd be better than scaffolding to yeah. me. Yeah, because I had two studios going a couple of years ago, and I had scaffolding at the B Complex in this really huge studio. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that was the first time I had been on scaffolding, oh. and it was actually outdoor scaffolding. But I tell you, you know, that stuff rocks back and forth, back and forth, and, yeah, you can fall oh. and die. Oh, and so I had, like, climbing gear, so I was, like, really, uh -huh. like, with the carabiners. And before I, when I, w you know, I just wasn't used to it, and I just wanted to be kind of safe, right? Right. And so I kind of strapped myself in with climbing gear. Smart. You know, and I know that that's what the guys do outside if they're like really right. high up on the side of buildings and things. But then I eventually kind of got used to it and uh, wasn't so scared of the scaffolding. I just had to trust the scaffold. I mean, when you're when you're focused on your work, it makes it easier because I'm I have kind of a fear of falling more than a fear fear of heights. Oh sure. But if I'm like focused on painting right you right. could i can do all kinds of things right, that i exactly, wouldn't normally do exactly and that's what i have to do i have to just focus on the work what's right, right. ahead right in front of me because if i start letting my mind wander and start looking around you know yeah so two future things i'm gonna start wrapping it up here i saw that you were recently in nashville at, Z at yeah. zeitgeist what's going on over there are you um i uh so jiha moon has a solo show there mm -hmm. and i collaborated with her oh great on two pieces Okay. And so I was like, let me go to Nashville. Let me get out of here oh, for a couple of days. I love Nashville. I do too. And so I went and talked to the gallery director. And so he and I are chatting about, you know, some possible things. Sweet. Yeah. 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 And the second thing that I saw that you had coming up was at the Ogden Museum yeah. in New Orleans. What's go That's a solo show? Oh, no. No. Okay. It's, a, it's a group show. But the, the cool thing is it's on, um, let me see, the curator said it's on the fourth floor? Okay. Fourth floor, fifth floor? But I get my own kind of gallery. So sweet, yeah. Um, and it's only gonna, that's only going to be three pieces and maybe a ten foot long, so it won't be too big. Three pieces. So that's in March. Uh -huh. um, are you doing new work for that? Or are you yes. Great? Okay. He 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 was wanting to play some old work, but uh, no. Why? Right. You gotta use, use <laughs> I need something new. I know. It. I have to figure out where I'm going to make this work. <clears throat> I'll, I'll figure it out. Well, it's been really nice talking to you. Oh, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for being so patient because I know you tried to talk to me before and I no. was all crazy. No, no. I feel like I'm just getting warmed up. 
Oh, well, what else do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you being here. That was a lovely conversation with Sonia Young-James. Thanks so much to Sonia. And thanks again to the guys from Brain Fuzz Podcast for letting us use your space at the Temporary Arts Center to record this episode. You can find images of us and our chat in the Brain Fuzz space, as well as pictures of Sonia's work at the Temporary Arts Center and links to her website and other web resources related to our chat on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L. Thanks so much for listening to Peachy Keen. The podcast is growing, and I really appreciate all of your support. Some folks have reached out to me as individuals to tell me what the podcast has meant to them, and I love hearing that it's having an impact in your lives and your work. There are so many great women artists around the Southeast, and as you can tell by listening, I love getting to know them and their work and being able to share it with all of you as well. I always love to hear from you individually, but it would really help to support the podcast if you could leave a quick review on iTunes, which is now called Apple Podcast, or on Stitcher. Peachy Keen also has a Patreon page where you can join as a subscriber to pledge your financial support. I've got a couple of irons in the fire for the next few episodes, but I'm not really sure the order those are going to manifest in, so hit those subscribe buttons so you don't miss it when the next episode drops, most likely in late February. Until then, I hope your days are peachy keen.